Welcome to another episode of Outliers with Daniel Scriver, where each week I sit down with an entrepreneur, investor, or iconoclast that's shaping our future. From new business models to mind-blowing technologies, we explore the world of tomorrow and the people that are building it. And we have a fantastic show for you today. My guest is Andrew Dumont. Andrew is the CEO of both Meteor, which is an open source JavaScript framework, and We Work Remotely, which is the world's largest remote work focused job board. Both of these are fascinating businesses, and we explore what it's like to scale an open source software business and the world of job board businesses, including how We Work Remotely has grown 5x since Tiny Capital purchased the job board just a handful of years ago. Andrew was previously the CMO of Bitly and an entrepreneur in residence at Betaworks, both of which we explore in depth. He's also a venture capital investor through his fund, Curious Capital, which he founded with Giphy founder and CEO, Alex Chung. This episode is titled Adventures in Business and Investing for a Reason, and that's because we go both broad and deep on a wide number of topics. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode and browse every episode of Outliers at outliers.fm. And with that, let's jump into my conversation with Andrew Dumont. Andrew, I'm so excited we could make this happen. Thank you so much for making time and coming on Outliers. You bet. Glad to be here. So the theme that we came up for today is adventures in business and investing, which will make a lot of sense once we get further along in the episode, because there's a lot to cover. But I thought as kind of a cool place to start, I was doing research for this interview, was reading stuff you've written, stuff that's written about you. And was really struck by your about page on your website. You list off a bunch of things that are different, you know, and kind of your experience from a traditional entrepreneurs. And then you have this paragraph that just says, but in spite of these shortcomings, I've been able to make my way through the world of technology and entrepreneurship on a combination of moderate intelligence, which I love, (laughs) and pure grit at a fundamental level. I guess that's what this site is all about. It's for the underdogs, the ones that haven't checked all the boxes, but have aspirations to truly be great. Can you share a little bit about just your background and your upbringing and how that led to your interest in entrepreneurship and investing. Yeah. And it was kind of by accident, really. So I first got started in technology. I think I was 17 or 18 and I had just graduated high school and I went to a state college because it was most affordable and you know the best option for me to go get a advanced degree. And when I was in school, I just had this desire to just start putting it in practice and start doing. And it always felt like school was kind of a waste of time that prevented me from doing that. The first entry into technology actually came just as I graduated high school. And there was an article in the local newspaper. I grew up in Bellingham, Washington, kind of almost (laughs) on the Canadian border. That maybe helps explain that. (laughs) Yeah. So I say sorry a lot. And that's that's why. But no, that's kind of how it started. And I reached out to the founder and I said, hey, I have no experience. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm really hungry and I want to try uh, and learn and help wherever I can. So at the time he was in their, his parents' basement and they were building this company called Tatango. They had just raised angel money and that's kind of what started it and did everything and anything that was needed and really wasn't specialized in anything other than just doing the stuff that needed to get done. And that was kind of my first experience. And it was after that, that I started kind of realizing what was my specialty? What was I good at? What did I enjoy doing? And then my career kind of went from that moment. But that's really where my entry into technology started. And I imagine a lot of people that work in tech, like it's kind of similar. They kind of fall backwards into it unless they are bred to do that or have that traditional upbringing, which I did not. And one of the things that you touched on there is just being in school, learning about business, but learning it in the abstract and wanting to put in those reps. And I guess, you know, the sense there is I'm learning something, but, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to learn, or maybe I'm not learning anything that's actually useful. To fast forward a little bit, and we'll talk about all the stuff that you've done, but did that turn out to be true? Like, were you glad that you had that eagerness to <laughs> to start putting in the work and learning? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's fundamentally, you'll kind of see I, I my career experience looks disparate and not planned. And it's really, it's not, you know, it really is led by curiosity and desire to learn. And I think in the early stages of your career, that's the most important thing that you can do. So that's always been the priority for me and demystifying and getting this kind of firsthand real world experience in everything that I do. And in a lot of different categories of work has been critical 
for me or the most important thing for me. So that's the big driver. And that's been the main thing I've been prioritizing. Do you advise people that want to go into business or start their own business or scale a business to go to school? Or do you kind of encourage people to take that direct route? I do. And, and my experience was interesting because I was in school when I started working at that first company. And then I actually dropped out for a period for about a year as we raised more money and it got more serious and it, it kind of demanded more for me. And then I actually went back to school and finished my degree. And I started working for a company in San Francisco called Seismic, which got bought by Hootsuite. And that was, for me, it was a, nobody in my family had completed, got a four-year degree. So for me, it was really important to just check that box and have that kind of understanding. But for me, it was, it was worth it. And I think it was really nice to match my real-world experience with my proper formal education and kind of have those going simultaneously was super valuable for me. And actually, over time, even though it's been devalued, I would say, in our world, I value education a lot. And I actually would love to go back at some point in my life and go get a master's degree or the next step. So for me, I've actually valued it more over time. And I think we kind of devalue it in our world more than we should really. So to fast forward a little bit, you have these, it sounds like right out of school, you start kind of jumping in and getting some of these reps at some of these smaller companies. And you eventually go on to work at Moz and become the CEO of Bitly. Walk us through a little bit of like your introduction to that venture capital world and some of the things you learned along the way there. CMO at Bitly. I just want to yes, correct sorry. that so Mark doesn't get mad at me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it really, my real venture experience started with Seismic and Seismic at the time had raised a lot of money it was right at that kind of early social platform days. And that was really my first taste of like, what does venture capital do to a business? And how much does that accelerate things? You know, and then went on to Moz where we had that same experience where we raised quite a bit of money in that scenario as well. And then I went to Betaworks, which was the next experience of that, which was more of a capital allocator and studio that led those investments and kind of was at the very early stage of that. And then I ended up at Bitly, which was I think in total, they raised over 40-ish million in venture. But at the time when I joined, we weren't running on venture money. We were running on revenue. I've had a lot of experiences between venture, no revenue, no profit, to today and Bitly and being revenue-driven. And I have to say, they seem a lot more healthy when they're driven on revenue and they're driven on profit and it feels a lot more sustainable and and that'll we can speak about the tiny stuff and you know how I ended up there but it's been something that has been pretty interesting just to analyze it from an operating standpoint just how different they really are yeah i love that you said that because that's something i think most people don't say i've had that same experience and to connect one other dot you and i both are venture capital investors so we ultimately end up making investments in companies so it's not that we think it's totally useless but i think we've also had that flip perspective of in that realization of at the end of the day a real business survives and thrives on revenue and obviously the venture capital kind of distorts that for a little bit what is your take on when someone should lean into venture capital and just some of the pros and cons there to your point venture capital is not bad necessarily but I don't think it applies to every startup. And I think it's kind of the narrative within our space that venture dollars equals legitimacy and success and potential and all that. And in some cases, that's true. But I think in most cases, venture capital is not necessary. And it creates this really challenging dynamic as a founder and as you know, someone working in those companies where interests are aligned until they are not. So if that company stops growing as quickly as it needs to, it puts the founder and the employees in a challenging situation. So it, I think it's a valuable asset, but I think the time when people should be raising venture is if they really have a massive idea that they cannot bootstrap that requires them to have some accelerant to go tackle that problem, which is a significant problem and a very complicated problem. As an investor, you know I've talked to probably almost a thousand companies now over the course of three or four years of investing. And most of those companies are not vent like they should not be looking for venture capital because there's a easy path or there's a path to bootstrapping it and validating the concept before they go raise the money. The problem, the fundamental problem is I think that people look at, I want to start a company, step one, step two, go raise money. And it's not that it shouldn't be that. 
and that's kind of my main gripe with it. I wish it was more, I have, I want to start a company. How can I go about validating that concept? How far can I get it? And then once I feel like I vetted it and I've got it to that point where it, I can turn on the gas a little, okay, then I should go pursue venture or I really have a significant idea that I want to tackle. Yeah, it's not a bad thing, but it's really this sexy thing in our world. And I, it just shouldn't be like, really, it, it really shouldn't be. And, and I, I would love to talk about the investor dynamics as well, which I think we'll get to just in terms of how much the investors need the startups. And it's really positioned as the other way around. No, that's such a great point. It is absolutely flipped. Yeah, it's interesting there. Just a couple of things that were kind of bubbling up as you were saying that there's this concept from good to great and uh, Jim Collins of, you know, firing bullets and then kind of firing torpedoes. So like, which just sounds very similar to what you're kind of advocating there, which is try to see as far as you can get on your own, try to validate it in a small cheap, affordable way. And then once you're sure you have something, you can lean into venture capital to really put accelerant there. But don't necessarily do it otherwise, unless you're you're truly looking to launch a capital intensive business, which in that case, you're going to need capital. You know, if you're, if you're launching rockets or building something physical. Yeah. And I'll give you one example of that. You know, I invested in a company called Blockable that's doing modular housing for affordable government housing. And that's a problem, unfortunately, that is just capital intensive. And it's going to take a lot to get that. You can't really bootstrap your way there. Whereas there's other things where it's a software as a service business that I can spin up using no code or, or low code type tools, test it, validate it, then go raise money for it. So there's different ideas that require different sources of capital. And I think we've kind of trained entrepreneurs to raise for any idea if they want to be a real startup. And I, I think that's where it's kind of flawed. I wanted to talk about one more thing related to venture capital because I think you might have some interesting perspectives here. I mean, one thing that's always struck me is for companies that raise, again, if you fast forward, a company ultimately needs to become profitable. They need to focus on bottom line metrics. But what typically happens is companies get venture capital. They're only focused on top line metrics. So they're focused on things like just total number of daily users or total number of accounts. And to do that, they're not focusing on monetization at all, which means the value proposition is effectively, we're giving everything away for free, but at some point that's going to have to stop. <laughs> and it's always struck me that it feels like a crazy way to whip saw around a customer base to start off free and then ultimately eventually need to charge any thoughts or perspectives there on just flipping that switch at some point? I mean, less on flipping the switch, but I think it speaks to the, um, the longer term piece of what happens to a venture backed company. And if you look at where they end up, the majority of them either die because they aren't able to reach the scale that they need to, or they get acquired and then die because uh, they get shut off by the acquirer. And then in some cases, a sustainable business emerges or they reach some scale where they can go public and be a independent revenue producing company that reaches that scale where that exists. But the problem is, is that 80, 90% of those companies fall into the first two categories where they die either by not reaching scale or die through acquisition, which is important to understand about venture is that that's the goal. Like the goal of venture capital in most cases, aside from that very, you know, the best outcome where they go public is to fund a company until they get acquired and then they get acquired for some multiple on your initial investment. That's kind of by design. And I've been a part of three acquisitions now. And in two of those cases, those companies die and they go away. And as an operator or a entrepreneur, you don't want your thing to die. So I just think it's important to note that like the incentive structure of venture capital is to have these businesses acquired in most cases and in some cases have them go public where they become their own large company. And that happens and that's great, but that is not the most common outcome, of course. We're going to get to this in a little bit, but I guess just as a little bit of a sneak peek, I know that you've done a lot of work with Andrew Wilkinson, Chris Barling at Tiny, and he's a super vocal advocate of not taking venture capital and just how messed up that is. Where do you lie on, I don't know, like is a real business just a bootstrap business? Are venture capital businesses bad or good? Like, do you have a point of view? <laughs> no, I mean, it, one's not good and one's not bad. I know Andrew well enough and his thoughts here, and we've had a lot of conversations about this. It's more on the... Um, the business of venture capital that I think is the problem, the incentive structure of venture capital investors, which is to raise a large amount of money, get management fees on that 
money that they've raised and then keep doing it and keep doing it and get a lot of on paper returns to then go be able to raise that next fund. That's the business of venture capital. And that's the part that I don't like as much. And I think Andrew doesn't like as much is what that creates and what sort of dynamic that creates in our ecosystem. I think the funniest thing about this is that the most capital efficient businesses are tech startups. However, tech startups are the ones that go raise the most money. And there's success and examples where that's proved out to work as an investor. But these are capital efficient businesses. Like They should not be the ones that are raising all that money in a lot of cases. So it's interesting. It creates a, you know, I just don't know how good it is for the ecosystem, honestly. And especially being in the investor role now and having that experience, um, it's even more clear that that's the case. I love that you made that point, and we'll come back to that in just a bit when we talk more about investing. One of the things I wanted to talk about just in terms of your experiences is your time as an entrepreneur in residence at Betaworks. And if you could talk a little bit about just your path to that role, what that role looks like in actuality, and anything you learned while you were there that's kind of shaped what you've done since. Yeah, and it actually goes back to that working in startups for so long. You look at venture capital, and you look at the people that are allocating the dollars you look at it and you're like, man, that would be amazing. I get exposure to, instead of just one company that I'm working on for this period of time, I get exposure to dozens. And you want to understand it too. Like you want to see the world from their position. So for me, like that was the main driver for going to Betaworks. And I learned so much from John and everybody at Betaworks. And they just have this great culture there. So for me at that time, there was a core team of about 10 people that worked at Betaworks. And Betaworks, for those that don't know, it was kind of the first studio, startup studio. And now there's quite a few of these out there. But their whole philosophy was, hey, can we take intelligent people and talented engineers and capital, and can we start creating companies that become interesting? And they've had success with that. Bitly was one of those companies, which is how I ended up there. Giphy was one of those, which recently got bought by Facebook. At the time, it was Giphy, Poncho, Dig, Dots. You had these, all these awesome companies in all these different categories. And you know, me in that role, I got to kind of jump from company to company. And I really helped with go-to-market and customer acquisition in the early stages of those companies, which was a great experience for me. So that was my experience at, at Betaworks, which then led me to go be CMO at, at Bitly. And I actually ended up there because... I wanted larger scale and I wanted that, you know, there's different phases of startups. There's zero to one, which is a really on product development and early customer acquisition. And then there's scaling where you go from, hey, we have product market fit in some capacity. Now let's turn it into a significant business. And I really wanted more of that experience on that kind of latter end of that spectrum. With all of the companies you worked with there and just the difference in the model, is there one lesson that you took away from that experience that continues to bubble up in your mind? Or is there Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, certainly as an investor, I'll use the Giphy example because I think it's just such a good example of how hard but how easy venture capital investing is. And I know that sounds funny, but Giphy, when Giphy was first starting, it seemed pretty dumb, you know, honestly. I, I mean, Alex is a friend and, and they went on to be very successful. But at the time, you know, it was a search engine for gifts. They just took this format that wasn't that exciting at the time and they provided a simple search engine for it. And at the time, being in Betaworks, I was like, oh, that's cool, but like, that's not a business. That can't really turn into anything significant. Me, right? Somebody who was, didn't look at it in the right sort of frame. Whereas John, saw the potential, saw the opportunity there. Alex saw the potential, saw the opportunity. I did not. And I, I think about that a lot because at least in the world of venture and picking opportunities, they don't look very good necessarily that early on. And it's not obvious at all until it's really obvious. And oftentimes that comes much later down the line. So I think about that one a lot and that experience a lot where it seemed dumb for a really long time. And then it was very obvious. And that's why when you do angel investing or early stage investing, it's so much about the person, which in that case, it was Alex and the team around him and the kind of early traction concept and opportunity with where they wanted to go with it. So I think about that a lot. And I've had a lot of experience with that investing independently now, where I reference that 
example all the time in my mind because it's never metrics it's never obvious it's never that when you're doing angel and seed pre-seed investing so i think about that a lot yeah i love that example i mean one for me though it's a little bit similar is notion you know i invested in notion pretty early on and at the time i just thought this is really cool. I think it's really interesting what they're doing. Did I think it was going to be worth over a billion dollars? Absolutely not. You know, and I think as a venture capital investor, you have those experiences. And I continue to ask myself, I think anyone that does venture just has a interesting differentiated perspective on investing in general. And just draw a little bit of a parallel, and this is going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think there's a lot of parallels right now between venture capital and investing in public markets where you have, whether it's SPACs or whether it's the IPOs that are going on, I think traditional public market investors are looking at those companies thinking they're, they're jokes, kind of like Giphy back in the day because it's still pre-revenue or small. And I think from being a venture capital investor, I don't really know what the skill is, whether it's seeing around corners or just seeing the potential or betting on the momentum. Do you have any perspective there or answer there on like, what is it that you're really trying to find? Is it momentum? Is it the vision? Is it the Yeah. <laughs> so, and this is where I've kind of fell out of love with venture investing because I think we do a really good job in our world of putting this feeling of like, oh man these people, these investors that find these companies, they must just really know what they're doing. No. <laughs> and, and it's just not, and, and you know that obviously, and, and I think anyone that does any level of early stage technology investing, unfortunately, it's reps. Like it's doing it a bunch and failing and seeing these kind of patterns that emerge as you go through it as an operator, I think. And it's reps in the number of checks that you write, unfortunately. There's a reason why Combinator exists because they need to put as many small checks into as many companies as early as possible. It's the fat tail bet. Right? <laughs> so I think it's really, and people need to understand this as founders and people pitching VCs to raise money is most VCs, they invest in hundreds of companies. They pull out the five that go become Notion or Giphy or whatever. But you need to understand that there's not some unfair analysis or whatever that's like it's not it's it's not a very sophisticated activity unfortunately and that's just kind of the nature of it so i i think it's important for entrepreneurs to just realize that which is why it was so important for me to get on the other side of the table because i wanted to demystify it and now that you have it just feels so unsophisticated in a lot of ways I love that you said that because I feel the same way. I don't see many people take, <laughs> taking that perspective and sharing that point of view, but I think it's definitely true. You know, and in my mind, it's like, just like forecasting markets is not a thing. Are there market forecasters? Yes. Does anyone have success at doing it repeatedly? Absolutely not. So why would it make sense that venture capitalists can predict the future and know exactly which companies? And the other piece I was just going to say is, because I'm curious if you've had these experiences and what you've learned from them, but I think for me... I've learned a lot from seeing the companies that go on to be big and always being surprised at the ones that go on to be big. That's one. And then the second one is just seeing all the different ways that companies can die <laughs> and how much that's eye-opening about all the ways that it can go wrong. So clearly, you focused on getting these reps. A part of that is seeing companies have small exits, seeing companies shut down. What have you learned or pulled out from the companies that have just totally just blown up? Or have there been any interesting insights or stories there? I think it's just people, honestly. Yeah, it feels like a cop-out answer, but it's really not. It seems, from my experience, where it's just so dependent on how resilient and tenacious and how much the founder believes in it or founders believe in it. That's really what it comes down to. But I, I want to go back to your point there on, on a lot of people don't share that perspective. And, and I'll tell you why. And it's because they're incentivized not to share that information. So if I'm a fund manager and my goal is to raise more funds, I need to see, make it seem like I have some unfair advantage that no one else has because that is my ticket to go raise more funds, which is how I get paid, which is my livelihood. So it is not in the best interest of the investors to simplify what it is that they do and make it seem like it, it, there isn't some unfair advantage to it. I think it's important to understand that dynamic, which is really like the Andrew Wilkinson perspective where it, there's an incentive structure around VC that makes it so that perspective is not shared much. And the world of venture and investing is very small, where if I rub certain investors the wrong way, I don't get deal flow. I don't get into companies. So I need to 
tread as lightly as possible. And for me, I don't have any desire to go raise another fund right now or realistically in the near term. So I think it's more important to share just the reality of what that world is for the entrepreneurs because I care more about them than I care about the other investors. Yeah. And it's the real world take. It's actually how it works in reality. you know. And I think a good point you make there is maybe another way of saying it is venture capitalists are in the business of kind of myth making. Like they're trying to make themselves and their firms into these mythical creatures and it just doesn't exist. And it's also why venture capitalists are hated. That's why things like VC brags <laughs> exist because you know to perpetuate those things, people know that there's not really anything there, but continue to have to do it. But until you experience it, you still believe that there's something there. And I, I just hope. think it's, a, yeah, you hope, yeah. right? And and it, that was just so obvious for me when I, I moved into this side is it, it just hit me in the face. And I was like, this is it. And I, I don't want to like completely bash it because it's it does good in the ecosystem in some cases. Giving more people opportunity to start companies is a good thing. So I don't want to push that down too much. But I, I just think it's important for people to understand the reality. So they don't go and have these conversations with investors and put them on this way up there and feel like it's just they have all the control because they don't in that equation. And it's all about expectations. And I think your whole point there is just have realistic grounded expectations when you go into these conversations. We're skipping through this a little bit because you just have a ton of experience. But So you have all of these kind of early stage venture capital backed experiences that leaves you with a sense that you want to move to the other side. And I want to move on to now talking about all the work that you've done with Tiny. And to just start off there, can you share a little bit of the background of how you came to know Tiny? I think I met Andrew probably seven, eight years ago, if I remember right. And I, I think I met him through Twitter, actually, which where all great relationships start. <laughs> these days. So I, I think we met there and we had just kind of stayed in touch. And at the time, I think I was in Seattle and then I moved to New York and started working at Betaworks. And then the other piece of my story is I loved being in New York and I loved that ecosystem. And then my mom got a late stage cancer diagnosis. So I had to move back home or I wanted to move back home to Seattle to kind of be with her, you know, as she kind of went through that process. So when I moved back to Seattle, I wanted to, one, give back to the local ecosystem and see the other side of the table. And then I, I started talking again with Andrew. And at the time, Tiny was getting momentum. This was probably, yeah, three or four years ago. You know, And he had a little business that wasn't really getting a ton of attention. And he said, hey, do you want to do this off the side of your desk and just kind of do this along with investing? So for me, I was like, yeah, I'm bored as heck investing and I don't really want to do this long term. Um, so yeah, let me take some runs at that. So that's kind of how I got involved with him and with Tiny. And it's obviously grown a lot since then and my involvement with them. But yeah, I'm just a huge fan of them and the way that they operate. They're just good people. And it's been really enjoyable to work with those type of people that have a long-term mindset on what it is that they're doing. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, they're incredible. Highly, highly, It's an amazing experience to get to work with them. And just to clarify too, that business was Tiny Boards, as it's referred to kind of internally. And can you describe a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I mean, it started really with WeWork Remotely, which is a remote job board. They had also acquired some smaller job boards as well. And they kind of internally, this is before I came on, created this entity of Tiny Boards, which included primarily WeWork Remotely. And, you know, that was three years ago or so. And it started with that business, which was quite small at the time you know, with the advancement of remote work, which obviously is top of mind for everyone right now, and just the fundamentals of that business and what we were able to do with it. It's actually grown a ton and it's become a pretty significant business. So that's been the primary focus. And then I've since gotten looped into several other tiny companies running those companies for them. And I'm sure, you know, it sounds like a lot of the appeal was just to get to work more closely with Andrew, with Chris, with Tiny. But was there anything that interested you about the job board specifically? Because at least from the outside looking in, I don't know, you, there's a bunch of things you could say about them. They're kind of small and they seem like small, maybe throwaway businesses at the same time. It has that kind of fat tail where there's a few that make a ton of money. It's, it seems like a perfect asset light business. Just, I guess, what's your take on it as you've, <laughs> as you've worked through it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was not looking at that business and thinking, man, I really want to want to run a job board. Okay, so don't, you know, it was more, I want to start working with Andrew in a formal sort of way. This is a great initial opportunity and one that I could do kind of off the side of my desk initially. 
So that was a real like first hook in. Now that I've been doing it, they're fantastic businesses. They're super efficient. They're product light, like technology light. So you're not spending a lot of time and money on software development and new versions of the product and all that. And they scale really, really well. There's a bigger question of how big can you make them in that existing model? And then you start digging deeper and you realize ZipRecruiter is a, I think, $500 million a year type business. Indeed is a multiple billion dollar a year type business. So you see these examples and you think, okay, well, maybe there is more here. And that's kind of the next phase of that company is start, you know, to kind of see, start going down those different paths and see what you can create in that remote work niche, which is now much larger. So yeah, I think the biggest discovery is just how good of a business it is, both from a profit margin, revenue, efficiency standpoint, and scalability. It takes a pretty small team to operate that business. So from a tiny perspective, it like fits right in their sweet spot in terms of the type of business that they like. I won't stay on this too much longer, but I just had two questions I was curious to kind of dive into around job boards. And one of those is just the concept of a moat. Do you think there's a moat and what is that moat? And then the second one is, so in the case of WeWork Remotely, where you're kind of, you have this starting point of this acquisition you make and you go about scaling it, thoughts on, I don't know, things you've learned along the way, things you've tried, just how you go about even scaling a job board. (laughs) Well, the moat is the audience that you have. The moat is the candidate base that you have. So the thing that you'll realize about hiring technology is that people only care about the number of applicants and the quality of applicants and filling their role. So as long as you are an efficient source to go do that for them, there's a lot of value that's placed on that. So the biggest moat in that world is audience and community and candidates at the end of the day. So early on, our biggest thing was let's build the pie up as large as possible. So we invested really heavily in content production, in SEO and kind of being more efficient from that standpoint. Paid acquisition actually isn't a huge mix for us, although it will probably have to be over time. But early on, it hasn't needed to be. So we really invested in the long-term compounding assets that create value long-term. You know, And I learned this at Moz. Moz is one of the best in the world or was one of the best in the world at creating these long-term assets that continue to produce value, like their beginner's guide to SEO, where it's, it lives out there forever. Sure, it takes a lot of time and energy to produce it, but it keeps paying dividends. And that's my general marketing philosophy is I want to invest in the things that may not give me an immediate return, but give me a long-term return. Sure. And compound over time. Yeah. And compound over time. And you know that's why like I think a lot of the ecosystem is all about, let me just run Facebook ads because the math works. Like let's just keep going. And that's great as long as you have the money to do that. And as long as the math continues to work out. However, the moment I turn off my Facebook ads, they die like that dies. So this is one of the things I learned very early on at Moz. And it has been like the foundational element is like, let's invest in the things that are not immediate return, but are long-term and produce value for a very long time. And typically that's content marketing, right? That's, those are like the heavy assets there. So yeah, that's, that was kind of the philosophy and that has scaled really, really well for us. But remote work is getting super competitive. It's harder to maintain that moat now than it was. So that's really the next challenge for that company. And we'll see how we do. Sure. So competition increases, you need to find new ways to compete and I guess new tactics. And with the, just on the moat question, one other, I guess, I don't know, another take on that or another perspective on that is, so if someone wants to, and I'm sure potentially you guys see this as job boards, I think I've seen them kind of tossed about on the internet as like, it's a great starter business. You can launch one, you can build one, you can grow one. So it leaves me to believe that there's probably a lot being launched and, you know, they probably, they probably don't yeah. grow to scale. <laughs> yeah. But when you guys see that, what makes it so difficult for someone to go and clone WeWork remotely or try to rip you guys off? Is it just, you've built up that audience? It's super easy to clone and rip off and it happens all the time. So that's easy. The hard part is the moat, which is the scale and audience and the candidate volume, right? So that's where that breaks. So you need to be a great marketer, customer acquisition person to get to a level where you can compete with a WeWork remotely or some of these other players out there. And if you don't know how to do that, like the technology is not the thing there. So it is super easy to spin something up and compete right away. But reaching the scale is the really, really hard part. And the way I think about that is we want to help 
those companies get started. And we had this philosophy at Moz too, where it's like, use our API, use our data, show our jobs on your board. We'll help you get started in that way. So we get more visibility and they have the seeding of jobs to get started. And if they become more competitive with us over time, so be it. But I would much rather be friendly and get some value as they start growing by exposing our jobs on their board than just kind of trying to cut it out, if that makes sense. So smart. That's kind of like the Trojan horse exists. (laughs) Here's a gift, but it also gives to us. (laughs) So then going from tiny boards, you know, I know that I think it was last year that Tiny acquired Meteor and you took over that and you're on to something else now. Can you talk a little bit about the subsequent things you've worked on? For me, I think you mentioned this concept of just reps. And for me, that is always the thing. It's just more reps. I I want to be as sophisticated in as many areas as possible. And more reps are always better. So they bought a company called Meteor, which is a open source JavaScript platform, which has a hosting business alongside it. And at the time that business was declining quite a bit. And there was a moment, there was a period in time, I think it was 2013-ish, when Meteor was, was getting a ton of attention and it was kind of a darling platform. And then it was kind of ignored for a few years. So it presented a really interesting challenge where It's a decent business, but it's declining and people kind of lost faith in it. So how can you turn that around? And how can you do that in a open source JavaScript platform capacity, which is not an area that I've worked in before. So for me, it was like a great rep and a new sort of experience. And it's been fascinating and it's actually gone really well over the past year that we've been working on that. And what was the playbook that you followed or what have you tried and what has worked? I've been thinking about this a lot because I I think that the process is very similar between all these companies. And I don't want to call it a turnaround, but it's kind of like the, you take an acquisition, how do you make it grow from there? So let's not call it a turnaround, but how do you inherit an existing business and make it become more successful? And the way that I think about that process is step one, make it more efficient. So the first thing that I always do is I go look at the fundamentals of the business and I think, where is it inefficient? And that's from a cost perspective, right? So like what software don't we need, right? Like how much are we spending on hosting? Like how can we get more efficient there? What sort of contractors or outside resources or in-house, like what are we do? Like, do we need all that? And does it affect the business? To, so you want to get the business to a better financial position from like day one. That's goal number one. Then goal number two is what are the quick wins? What are the things that we can do to like immediately change the trajectory of this business? And typically you'll find business model issues. You'll find that there's just no process for talking to customer, existing customers or expanding the relationship there for the people that are happy. You'll find all these just kind of similar sort of things. You know, there's no motion on the marketing side. There's all this stuff that just kind of keeps coming up. And oftentimes it's like, it's the same three or four or five things that exist in every single one of these businesses that either stalls or doesn't reach that next level. So it's pulling those out, but it's really stabilizing the business, finding the quick win opportunities that are most likely or usually in the business model or in the go-to-market. And then it's figuring out what is the team that I need to like really make this a compelling thing. And that's what we've been lucky to find on the Meteor side is Felipe which is kind of our main, our CTO and the person that's leading that technology. You know, he was a Meteor developer, super passionate about the platform, knows exactly where he wants it to go, way better than I would. So getting people like that, that can continue to drive it forward. So that motion has been very interesting and it's very similar from company to company. A lot of those things you touched on there, whether it's marketing related, are things that would be really easy to observe and kind of I don't know, intuit what to do from the outside looking in. But I imagine something like you kind of referred to business model problems, which I'm guessing is pricing, packaging, you know, just that is a lot more difficult because you're not really sure what the right move is there. How do you approach that part of the problem? Well, you talk to customers first, if you have them. And the beauty is when you inherit a business, there's some downsides. But the good part is, is that you you typically are starting with something. So it's easy to go talk to customers and get a sense of what the issue is. Like, where are they churning out? Where are they not utilizing it to the full capacity that maybe they should? Then you can start addressing those things. And I've actually really enjoyed, because I've spent a lot of time in the zero to one 
I've really enjoyed the once you've hit product market fit, how do you go become something more meaningful? And the reason for that is it, it's less of a guessing product development sort of initiative, and it's more of a tweaking exercise, which if you've done it enough, you know what things to tweak and what knobs to turn. And for me, I've really enjoyed that process, actually, which is not the sexy part. But I, for me, that's like the thing that I've really enjoyed. One more thing I wanted to dig in there because, you know, I've observed this, I've had my own experience with this, but when you inherit one of those business, like you described, oftentimes things aren't super great. You're not inheriting a business that's scaling super quickly. It maybe is stagnated or it's declining. And one thing that doesn't get talked about enough there is, you know, there's the whole playbook of how do you turn it around. But the other component is completely like psychological and emotional, which is you feel like this thing's slipping through your fingers or it's imploding. How do you manage that? Or I guess any tips on compartmentalizing that, that piece of it? Well, I think it's just so important to piece it out and not try to boil the entire ocean at once. And you also have to understand that if something is, is getting acquired or sold, there's a reason maybe why. So you have to kind of expect that there's some dead bodies around in that business once you dig into it. So that's just assumed. But generally, I think the biggest and most important thing is just to understand that you can't fix it all at once. And that's especially true when you're inheriting something, because if you started a company before, you can set vision from the very, you know, you're not setting the vision necessarily in that scenario. So it's more about what business do I have today? And what do I want it to become? And what are the steps that I need to take to get there? And how do I want to prioritize those things? How do I want to segment them into different sprints is kind of how I think about that. And that's really important. Yeah, it's a great, super thoughtful framework. Just one, and I want to transition in a second, talk about investing, but just on this side, and I know in these cases, it's not like you're acquiring this individually. You're certainly part of it. You're coming in, you're leading that work. For someone who's listening to this and wants that experience or wants to acquire a business, any thoughts, pieces of wisdom you'd share with them? Well, I think it's a great way to get experience, actually. If you don't want to go spin it up yourself, there's a lot of these smaller micro SaaS or micro scale technology companies that you can buy for 100 bucks, 500 bucks, a couple thousand dollars, and you can kind of, you can get a, a run at it. So I think it's a super interesting path if you are, you know, maybe working at a company and want to do something off the side of your desk or get that kind of entrepreneurial experience without the kind of, because it's very daunting when you have an idea and you think, okay, I want to go start that. You start thinking about, okay, well, who's my co-founder? Who's going to build this for me? How long is that going to take? How am I going to fund that? All that. Whereas if you buy something small that's existing and you know, it's maybe simple technology, you can jump right in. And, and as a non-technical person, like I can find my way around, but like it's not my expertise. Opportunities like that are amazing for me because I get reps and I get motion on go to market and acquiring customers. And like, that's the experience that I'm best at. And for non-technical people, it's a great entry point to get in. Yeah. And a great way to get reps early on in a way that, yeah, like even hearing you kind of describe, yeah, because I've had so many friends that do this. I have an idea. I need to hire a co-founder. It immediately puts you in that boiling the ocean where it's like, it takes 110%. Overwhelming. It's not going to yeah, happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super overwhelming. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening in a lot of cases is you don't action on that and you don't go do it because it is so daunting. And then those ideas just go away and someone else does them, and whatever. It's a difficult path. So transitioning, you know, I, I want to start to move and talk a little bit more about the investing side of this. And, you know, I know that you have a small VC firm, Curious Capital. You founded that with Alex Chung, who's the CEO of Giphy. Super interesting investments, obviously amazing co-founder. So I'm curious with everything we've discussed and having a really good understanding of the pros and cons of venture capital, what made you so curious and fascinated to go and do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, for me and that specifically, I was coming back to Seattle, which this is less exciting if you're not in this ecosystem. But for me, it was how do I give back and get involved and provide an alternative maybe to some of these other, at the time, existing investor set that you had to work with here in Seattle. So that was the primary kind of thing. And then after that, it was, I want to learn and I want to do this firsthand. And joining a firm wasn't interesting to me. You know, I'm much, my mind is always, let me go do it and let me understand it. So for me, that was kind of the, that was the main thinking there. 
unfortunately with the VC fund, you can't really bootstrap. You can't really like hack your MVP your way in there. Although I kind of did, but it became very obvious to me that after I raised that first small fund that I didn't want to keep doing this. Like I didn't want to keep raising money for the rest of my career. And that's the business that you're in as a GP or a founder of a venture capital firm. So for me, it was very obvious. And was that just the, because I have to ask, was that more, you saw the role as just fundraising and that's not at all what brought you to it? Or was it something else? Is it just, I guess, the management aspects of it? (laughs) Well, no, it's not the management aspects. It's the timeline that you're working with. And it is the, for me, it was, I would much rather go build a company than build a VC fund. And I like that motion a lot better. For me, it was a combination of that and just the timeline to get to scale of a VC firm. The thing that you don't, like most people don't realize is unless I come from successful firm X and I go out on my own and I go raise from those same LPs, or I am independently very wealthy or come from a wealthy family, the process to reach a venture fund that becomes large enough or large in general is I raise small fund one. And then I raise slightly larger fund two, and then I raise slightly larger fund three, and so on and so on. And that's a very long process. And you're signing up for 10, 20 years, and you have to really want to do that for the rest of your career. And that was not the intent that I had when I went in it. So no, it just didn't, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I saw all these other flaws in the business model and just like, I wasn't that interested in it because I pulled the you know sheet off and it was not that interesting and exciting. And it wasn't something that I wanted to keep doing. One of the things I wanted to get your kind of take on is, because I had this experience where I think, you know, from the outside looking in and, you know, as I kind of understand it, it seems like you did some small venture capital investments, then ended up raising this fund. So there was this kind of initial kind of curiosity with it, then kind of jumping into the deep end. But what I found is there's what you think the job's going to be. And then there's what the job actually is once you're in the chair and whether you like that or don't like that. What did you really enjoy or what do you really enjoy about investing? And I guess what are some of the things that you would highlight to people as kind of, I don't know, just things to be aware of or things to know before jumping in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is really important for people because I know it's kind of sexy now to go raise a fund and a lot of people want to do that. So it's important to understand if you go raise your own fund, The story of venture capital and being in that seat is that you get to spend all your day talking to entrepreneurs and helping them and doing all that stuff, which is true, but it is a very small portion of your day. If you do want to go be a fund manager and raise your own fund, your primary role is raising more money. And it will always be that way until you reach the point where I can raise a new fund in a couple of weeks, which is what a lot of these funds get to once they reach scale and have all the success. But when you are first starting a fund, you're going to spend your first five years realistically actively raising money from LPs. And that is your primary role. It is not interfacing with founders and everything all day and helping entrepreneurs. That's a small piece. So I just think it's important that if people realize that if I just want to work with entrepreneurs all day, join an existing fund. If I love raising money and I want to create my own firm, and that's the most important thing for me, and I really enjoy raising money, great, go start your own fund. But for me, I do not enjoy raising money that much. And that's kind of the primary role of a fund manager. One of the things that, you know, I'm really curious to get your take on, because one, it's not talked about enough. And just from what we've discussed, I imagine you have a a pretty different take here, is how you go about due diligence in companies that you're going to invest in. Because I think one, as we've already talked about, you're not going to predict the future. But you have to come to some way of deciding whether you're going to invest or not. What does that process look like for you? Boy, I mean, I'm going to be probably more on the end of the spectrum of, you know, it it really depends on the stage of the company. I just think that's important to start with. So if I'm investing in a company at Series A, Series B, Series C, and so on, I have fundamentals to, to diligence against. And you know this, of course, but when you're doing angel investing or pre seed, typically it's a team, an initial version of the product, maybe, if that usually no traction or revenue of any kind, and a deck. <laughs> With like a $51 billion TAM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Exactly. Always a massive TAM. But no, I mean, that's it, right? So like anybody that tells you, oh, there's this super sophisticated diligence process is just full of shit. So my diligence when it comes to investing is like, how excited am I about the space that they're 
building in and how ambitious is their idea around that? How much do I believe in the individuals and their ability to go execute against that? And lastly is any other indicators. So is there a product in market? Is there early traction? How is that first product? Like how good are they at building technology and, and product? Because that's going to be an indicator for future success. And that's it. And at the end of the day, you just kind of have to make the call. And I don't want to say gut, but there is a component of, I've seen this before because I've lived it before, either good or bad. And you start realizing there's all these red flags because you've been a part of them in the past. And you realize that maybe that's that red flag that I'm seeing. So let me just not do this one. It's not very sophisticated, to be honest, (laughs) at all. I mean, I feel very similarly. Like the best thing that I try to do is I think my framework seems very similar to yours. I think the thing that I try to do that's definitely been helpful is just the process of trying to write down my thoughts when I make that investment. So I have something that's concrete to go back and look at. So just in that vein, I guess, has your process changed over time and or do you find yourself when something goes really well or when something goes poorly reflecting and trying to draw out or do you think there's really nothing there? (laughs) I struggle with that. Of course, there's stuff there, but every single one of these companies is different and they all look very different. So it's tough to just say, oh, well, here was my mistake. Let me not go and do that again. But I do think it's a worthwhile motion. And this is why being an investor for a long time, you're going to create more of that sort of those reps, you know, just like we we talked about the reps from the operating side. If you do this for 20, 30 years, you're going to have enough reps to start understanding. So I do do the same thing that that you do, which is when I make an investment, I write down my thoughts on why. When I miss on a company that goes on and becomes very successful, I go back and I look and I see maybe what did I miss here? And then the ones that you know don't become successful, you know, fail for whatever reason, I kind of do the same sort of analysis. But yeah, it's there's not a great playbook there. And that kind of speaks to the fundamental thing that is missing a little bit, at least in super early stage investing. So I, I just want to preface it like that. The stage is very important to that process. Yeah. No, I agree. And I'm glad you called that out because it is very, very different as you think about that. Is there anything, again, we've talked about, you know, kind of advice for people that might maybe want to go raise their fund, but I'm curious, one thing that I noticed is, so I maybe had, I guess, a little bit of the inverse experience where I started out as an investor first had ideas about what was helpful that were largely shaped by kind of like what an investor would find helpful if they were an entrepreneur, (laughs) then started focusing much more seriously on the entrepreneurial side and had an aha moment, like within two days of being in the entrepreneurial role where I was like, wow, I've everything I thought was helpful as an investor is (laughs) not helpful. What is your thought process there on like, what can investors do? What do investors do that's actually helpful for entrepreneurs? And what do they do that's just totally not helpful at all? Well, I'll tell you what I do. And this is educated by my experience as an entrepreneur and operator. Every new investment that I do, I say, hey, my expertise is in go-to-market and customer acquisition. So if you need additional support there, let me know. Okay. I then give them my personal cell phone number and I say, anytime you need anything, call me or text me. And the real thing there that I'm offering is a accessible I don't want to say therapist, but kind of therapist that like when shit gets bad or because it inevitably does, give me a call and like, let's talk it out. And, you know, I don't, my check isn't big enough where it's like, I'm going to be super upset one way or the other. So that's kind of my position that I take, at least in my role. And then I get out of the way and I'm there if they need me. And if they don't, then, you know, that's okay too. So that's at least what I wanted as an entrepreneur and as a operator. So that's how I've gone about it. So that's how I approach it. But I think the biggest thing an investor can do is give that support kind of a friend through the process that's at their same sort of level that they can kind of just confide in. I think that's value number one. And then value number two is there's all these pieces of the business that they're going to need help with. So being an expert in one area that they can go to is valuable. And then the last piece is the next round or that future funding. Can you write another check or can you help me get in the door at one of these firms that I'd want to raise from in the future. But that's like kind of it, really. And I'm sure even with that process, you're already a lot more helpful than most (laughs) most investors (laughs) because you're clear about where you can help. (laughs) It's easy to reach you. One thing I wanted to talk about is kind of just reflecting. So I guess jumping 
to the other side of kind of what we've been discussing. So we've been discussing starting to invest, raising a fund, what that looks like. And now I want to kind of jump to the other piece because I think this is something that's not talked about enough, which is you've made a bunch of investments and you now are in the position where you get to watch them play out. And I think just some observations I've had there is I think most people investing in venture capital or early stage companies have the totally wrong timescale. And in my thinking, it's more like a 10-year timescale to where you're actually going to realize a return, which for a lot of people is if you tell people, hey, you're going to make an investment, it could be an amazing outcome, but it's going to come in 10 years. I think most people would walk away. So it's just the timescale is different. But then the second one is, as we've talked about, like it's inherently a model where you're putting out a lot of checks getting in a lot of reps. Some of those are going to be big. A lot of them are not going to be anything. Like, I don't know, any thoughts, observations on watching it play out and how that feels or what you've taken away from that experience? I think you nailed it. It's, it's the companies maybe that you don't expect to go and be have this great outcome or, you know, they sometimes do. It takes a very long time. I've been fortunate in the first fund where three of the companies have gotten acquired already and they were really good exact acquisitions. So that's a rarity. But you know, it's just long term and it takes a long time. I think the bigger thing is as an individual, you probably shouldn't do angel investing. Yes. So most people should not, absolutely. Yes. And there's definitely like this, you know, I, I see Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank do his commercial about making it accessible to everyone and blah blah blah. And that's great conceptually, but it's a pretty shitty asset class, like from a an individual investing standpoint. Every once in a while, sure, you may hit something big, but you need to write a lot of checks to go do that. And unless you have a massive amount of like disposable income, it is probably the worst place you could put your money. So like, I just think it's important for people to like understand that. No, I'm so glad you said that. No, it's, and it's seriously, it's like the things that people need to know is 10-year time horizon. You probably need to invest at least $100,000 or more in trying to get to 20 plus startups. And then the third one, which I think everyone understands conceptually, but it's very different when you're in the position is it's completely illiquid. So you have these things that are potentially large gains. You don't see anything. There's no income. There's no capital gains. There's nothing until there's an exit. And I think that when you sit there with that discomfort of seeing these, seeing things go on to raise additional rounds, but having no idea if or when it's ever going to materialize, I don't know, it's just very different in practice. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. So it, it's just important for people to, to understand that. And, and I get, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am one of the first person who learns by doing, and I understand the desire to do it, but that's okay. But just be aware of the, what you're getting into and the timeline and really how many checks you would need to write to have some success there. And even then, that's not guaranteed in any way, of course. Totally. It's like another way of saying that's you're signing up to learn viscerally. That means it's going to be really uncomfortable. But you know, that's what, what you take away at the end of the day. It's just the, the price you pay. There's a ton of other stuff that I wanted to ask you about, but I'm going to hold that off and cross my fingers and hope we can do a, a part two someday. So I'll move on to closing questions. And one of those is, so we didn't talk about, you know, you've not only done obviously a lot of venture capital investing, you've also invested in real estate and done some really interesting, fascinating stuff there. We'll save that for another time. But I guess one thing that I wanted to just try to close on is like, what are you most excited about as an entrepreneur and an investor now? And are there areas that you just find really interesting and fascinating? This is again, kind of a, probably a weird answer. I could list off all the different areas like maybe digital currency or all these different areas that are kind of a remote work, all these different areas. And that's great. But I'm coming up on 13 years now in early stage only technology. And I've just kind of learned that they things move and change. And the things that you think are really interesting spaces, like maybe prove not to be, or at least not right away. So I, I really care less about trends and all that stuff and kind of pontificating on what space is going to emerge and all that stuff. So I'm less excited about that. I'm most excited about doing the work and getting the reps. And I wish more people were excited about that because I think it just, we need it more in our space, like just doing the work instead of building your brand or doing all this stuff, which is valuable. And I have been online for a very long time talking and doing all that stuff. But I, I just, uh, that's what I'm most interested in, honestly. And it's not exciting or interesting or any of that, but genuinely, like that's my real answer to that question. So there's probably somebody else, yeah, <laughs> that will have a better answer. No, there. no, that was a, that's an incredible answer. And I'm right there with you. So we'll leave it there. It's been an incredible conversation. But just for anyone listening to this that wants to reach out to you, wants to find you online, where can people find you? 
used to be more active on Twitter. I, I'd like to get more. <laughs> it's funny. I just said that. But uh, on Twitter, Andrew Dumont is my handle there. And then if you want to reach out to me on email, I'm hello at andrewdumont.me. And yeah, I'm always online and accessible and I try to respond to everybody that reaches out. So yeah, please reach out and uh, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, man. And thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. You bet. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. For show notes, including links to everything mentioned in this episode, visit danielscrivener.com. There you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, where each week I send out a single email with all of the best quotes, themes, and ideas from the latest episode. To sign up for that, visit danielscrivener.com slash email. Just one more thing before you take off. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Great reviews help us land great guests. So if you've enjoyed this episode, take 30 seconds to leave a short review. We would so appreciate it. Thank you so much.